Well, it's been a while since we've done our study in in First Timothy. Just it seems there's been a lot of different things going on on Wednesday nights here lately. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to First Timothy, chapter one. It's been quite a while since we've really had time to dig into it. First Timothy, chapter one. And remember, First and Second Timothy and Titus—they're the pastoral epistles. They've become known as that. Um, because they're written, written to churches, to pastors, to leadership, to give, uh, to show order in the church, uh, to show the importance of sound doctrine, and uh, and things like this, and exercising ourselves to godliness. And so Paul wrote these letters, and he wrote First and Second Timothy, of course, to Timothy, who was his young disciple, uh, that was he became the pastor of the church at Ephesus, and so. A lot of things that Timothy would face and discouragements and trials and tribulations, especially being young, uh, Paul wanted to encourage him and to exhort him. Same thing in 2 Timothy and same thing in, in Titus. We're going to do a study at least through First and 2 Timothy. We're still in 1 Timothy chapter 1, and we've laid a lot of groundwork. And I'll tell you that uh, sound doctrine is one of the, probably the biggest theme through these, these epistles that I've mentioned. Sound doctrine, okay? Sound words, wholesome words, sound doctrine. And sound there means whole, it means healthy. It means healthy, okay? So anything that's not of the Lord, anything that's perverted or twisted or partially God and partially man or partially God and partially another spirit is not going to be sound. It's going to be, it's going to be a perversion or a twisting of that. And there's no health at all in that. There's no spiritual well-being in doctrine that's... Uh, it's either watered down or perverted in some way. And a perverse, perverted just means twisted. It's, it's a real truth. You take a real truth and you twist it, and then it's not a real truth anymore. It's a, it's a, a deformed uh, picture of that same truth, but it's not the truth, okay? And it's not healthy. That's a main theme throughout uh, these epistles. So we've talked about it a lot, and I want us to pick up. The last time I really had a, we had a full lesson on this, on 1 Timothy, I spent the whole lesson talking about the law, okay? And it was a good, to me, it was a, it was a good groundwork, laying a good groundwork for the law. So let's look at this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. And I'm not going to go back over all of, of that lesson, not by a long shot, but I do want to just get our, our thoughts back to where we had left off. Verse 8, but we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully. Okay, so there is, a, there is a goodness to the law, the Bible says, and there is a proper use to the law. An improper use would be if I came to you or you came to me or any pastor, used the law and the Ten Commandments is, is primarily what we're thinking of, and said you have to do these things without fail. This is, this is your, you have to perform these things in order to be accepted by God, in order to be righteous in the sight of the Lord, you have to do these things and perform these things, okay? That would be one example of an improper use of the law. It's not what it's for. He says, uh, we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully, knowing that the law is not made for a righteous man. Now, first of all, there's none righteous, right? No, not one. It's not made for righteous men. It's made for sinners. And what is the purpose of the law? What was God's intent we're talking here about the law of Moses, the Mosaic law, the Levitical law. What was the intent? And I can say in two, two primary things. Number one, 
to point men to Christ. Everything in that system from the priesthood to the, the, the sacrifices, the offerings, the tabernacle itself, everything was to show the holiness of God, the sinfulness of men, and to bring people to a place where they saw, uh, Paul says in Romans, the law made sin exceeding sinful. It highlighted it. You say, what's the good about that? There's a lot good about that. The, the sinner's already a sinner, but he may not think he's that bad. And the law shows we are that bad. We are that bad, and you are that helpless, and stop trying to be better than your neighbor, and you need to come to God for mercy and grace, and there's, you have to be robed in the righteousness of another. That's where mercy comes in, and grace, and the sacrifice of Jesus, the just for the unjust, okay? So that's primarily the, the right use of the law. And the men of God and the women of God that lived under that law, I think of David all the time, they understood that. David didn't look to the law. He loved the law, and he tried to keep it, and he walked in, and he delighted in it, but he knew he was a sinner. Have mercy on me, O oh God. I'm a sinner. He called out to the Lord, and so the law did bring him to Christ, so to speak, even though he lived before Christ came. So I want to look at a few things uh, just real quickly. Ver, uh, turn with me to Romans. Keep your spot mark there and turn to Romans. If you want a great study in the law, we ha you have to study the Paul's epistle to the Romans. You just have to. But let's look at verses 3 and 4 of chapter 8. Romans 8, 3 and 4. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. So there's something, even though... It says in Romans 7, the law is good and just and holy and spiritual. That's what Paul says as a saved man. He's, that's his comments about the law, and that's God's word. And, but he says there's, there's a, something the law cannot do. The law cannot make a man righteous. The law cannot impute righteousness to a man. It does not have that of power. The law has power to highlight sin, to show the sinfulness of man, in the same breath, show the holiness of God in this great gulf. And God was merciful and allowed animal sacrifices to temporarily cover or atone for men's sin while leading them to true salvation by faith in the Lord. Like Abraham believed God way before the law, and it was counted to him for righteousness, right? And so the law could not, what the law could not do, and it was weak through the flesh, God sent his son, verse 4, that the righteousness of the law, so there is a righteousness of the law. Christ fulfilled it. He wouldn't have fulfilled something that's sinful, okay? There is a righteousness to the law. Thou shalt not kill and don't commit idolatry and so forth, uh, and murder and don't bear false witness. There's a righteousness of the law, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. That's people who couldn't keep the law, that are sinners and separated from God, and yet that righteousness is, this is where we use the word imputed, or imparted to us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Okay, so that when we put our trust in the Lord, there is a righteousness of the, of the law. We don't have it on our own. Christ is righteous. He perfectly fulfilled the law. That's how we brought it into it. I know I stressed that weeks ago when we taught on this. He didn't say... This is ridiculous and get a big axe and chop it up or get the Ten Commandments and bust them up with a hammer. 
He, he fulfilled the law. He fulfilled it. The righteousness and the righteous requirements of the law, he fulfilled. So I look to him and I put my faith in him and he imputes that same fulfillment of the law and the righteousness, not the ceremonial law, okay? Not the civil law or the ceremonial law or even the sacrificial law, but the moral law, the righteousness is imputed to us when we put our trust in him. But unto him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted unto him for righteousness. Him who works not, that's Romans 4, 5, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, that's me and you, his faith, my faith in that Holy One, is imputed to me as righteousness. That's taught all through the Bible. Anything, when you try to add to one side of that equation in any way, it's going to be a perversion. It could be legalistic, and you try to make things overbearing with rules and performance. Or you could be lax and say, I'm free to just live however I want. And both are a perversion because neither are scriptural. We put our eyes on Jesus, and we're conformed into his image, which is holy. Okay? So, uh, that is what is imputed to us. It's the righteousness of Christ. Now, Christian life, we're going to move on because I spent, if you missed it and you want to go back and listen to it, it was, it was part four uh, on our study. And it was, the whole message was just on why the law? What was God's intent? Is, are we under the law? What, why did give, God give a law? What can the law do? What cannot, can't the law do? And a proper use of it. So that was just, uh, that would be wonderful uh, and helpful, I think, if you, would, if you would listen to that. But Christian life, Christianity does not produce bondage. So if we're, you're under any type of system that's called Christianity that is producing a bondage, it's not Christianity. Christianity produces liberty, not bondage. It does not produce bondage to the law, nor does it produce bondage to sin. It produces liberty, okay? Liberty in Christ, freedom in Christ. The only bondage that we're in is a willful, when we've been bought by the blood of Jesus, and Paul says, I'm a bond servant or a bond slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am his, okay, and I belong to him. If you want to call that a bondage, then that would be the only type of bondage that we're in. We present ourselves as living sacrifices to God. We take up our cross daily and follow one, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not free to do whatever we want. We're free to live as he's called us to live. Amen? But that's not really a bondage. And so uh, let's, let's move on. So now he's, he's contrasting, or not contrasting, he's going to move on into the, speaking of the gospel. He spent those last 8, 9, and 10 specifically speaking about the law. Now, what was happening, y'all, in, in Paul's day that he was writing specifically to Timothy about? There were Judaizers. We read about them. If you want to study that, we talked about it in Galatians uh, that, that was preaching the necessity to the church. Church, you, it's great that you believe in Jesus, but you need to keep all of the law, too. And they had already been free, and they were walking in freedom and liberty in Christ. And then this message comes to them, and they believed it. They shouldn't have believed it. 
they had a fault in it for believing and listening to it, and certainly the Judaizers had uh, an error, you know, and, and bear the fault of, of preaching and teaching it. So that was one of the main false doctrines. He says it in the previous verses here. They desire to be teachers of the law. They don't know what they're saying. Okay, they don't know what they're talking about. In verse 7, he says, from such turn away. Don't give them the time of day. Pray for them. Move on your way. You don't have to entertain, entertain them. You don't have to uh, get along. Well, let's be open-minded and listen to this for a little while. You don't, you're, we're not obligated to do that. When we know from the word of God that something is false, it's from such turn away. You let God deal with them. You don't hate them. You put them in God's hands, and you go on with your life and your walk with God. But the problems come when we sit down at a table. Let's debate, and let's dialogue, and we'll have someone facilitate this. And we'll try to, try to find some common ground. There's not a common ground between truth and error. There's no common ground. It's called compromise, okay? From such, turn away. The other big, uh, primarily the other big doctrinal error that was prevalent in this day. John deals with it a lot in first and second. John and in the Gospel of John is the Gnosticism. And uh, we spoke about, you know, what, what that means. It highlights and emphasizes experience over doctrine. Personal experience, what you feel. And the only reason you don't get what I'm saying and understand what I'm saying and is not as deep as I am is because you haven't experienced my experiences spiritually like I have. That's a primary characteristic. It's arrogant. It's, it's unbiblical. The only test we have to know if something's of God or not of God is the Word of God rightly divided by the Spirit of God. That's the only test we have. It's the only one we need. Okay? So, let's get on to this. And then he says uh, in verse 11, we're skipping now because this is really will be new material. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. And I said the gospel does not bring, and Christianity does not bring bondage to sin or the law. It, it brings a liberty. And so he says it's the glorious gospel. Really, what is the gospel? We know it, but if you would turn here and read with me in 1 Corinthians 15, if you're ever teaching this, if you ever want to uh, explain it to someone, God explains it to us in his word in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. We don't need to take away from this or add to it, not the gospel itself, okay? 1 Corinthians 15, 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached, past tense. They're brethren because he preached the gospel to them at some point in the past, and they believed, which I preached unto you, which also you have received and wherein you stand. They didn't move from the gospel to something else. There's deeper truths, and there's a lot more to learn, but they're still standing in that same gospel, okay? And by which also you are saved, if you keep in memory, memory what I have preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. All right, so any... You can start picking this apart in a million different ways. Well, I don't believe Jesus actually died. I think he just sort of passed out. That's the swoon theory, that Jesus didn't die on the cross. He just lost a lot of blood and passed out. Therefore, there's no real resurrection. That's, the, that's one of the main points of that. Okay, every point of this is important. He died according to the scriptures. 
He wasn't, he wasn't uh, beheaded like Paul. He wasn't stoned to death like Stephen. He died on a cross, according to the scriptures, Old Testament and the Psalms. He's going to hang on a tree. Okay, and so, anyway, uh, according to the scriptures, and he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. Then he was seen of, of witnesses that actually saw the resurrected Lord, right? Forty days on this earth before he went ascended to his father. So, that's the gospel. And Paul says back in 1 Timothy, you can turn back there, it's the glorious gospel of the blessed God. And it was committed to his trust, okay? It's God's truth revealed through divine revelation. And at the heart of it is, to me it ties in with the gospel, at the heart of the gospel is the fact that Christ fulfilled the law. It's one of the main hearts main parts of the gospel is that he fulfilled the law he perfectly satisfied in every detail the law and so again the law is not wicked but the law is finished because someone finished it our lord and savior that's why jesus said this is the new testament in my blood the new covenant in my blood it's a new, whole new covenant the old ones passed away uh, so the gospel makes known what is the, the will of God and I would say the duty of man. The gospel makes known the will of God and the duty of man towards God. It makes that clear. And it does not, I think I said this weeks ago in our study, the gospel, nowhere does the gospel permit what the law forbids. We're talking about morally. We're not, no, when we talk about the civil law, you know, I've been reading through Leviticus, just that's where I'm reading right now in my Bible. And chapter after 60 verses maybe on the law of leprosy. You know, like what do you do if you've got leprosy in your clothes and in your house and it's on the wall. And, and all these detailed laws and what sacrifices are to be made and what the priest is. Uh, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the righteousness of the law. We're talking about the, the moral law. It says in Hebrews, what well, was quoted from Ezekiel, and then in Hebrews it, it says that the days come when the, when the law would be written on our hearts, right? And in our minds, not on tables of stone, but on fleshly tables of the heart. And so that's, he's speaking about the moral law, not the, what the priests are supposed to wear. There's a new covenant. But that moral law has always been God's moral from Adam and Eve, you know, from, from eternity past. And so... Uh, the, the gospel nowhere permits what the law forbids. If the law says, for example, thou shalt not steal, there's nowhere in the gospel of New Testament Christianity where you're going to find that, no, but the gospel says we can steal. That's my point. The, gospel's, uh, the, the law says, you know, not to, uh, to make any graven image to some creature or being and bow down to it, basically. And the gospel says, no, we can do that. We can do that because we're in the under the gospel now in grace. There's nowhere that the gospel permits what the law forbids, okay? Again, we're talking about the moral law, not the ceremonial law or the civil law or how you buy land and sell land and stuff like that. Now, it's in, in regards to morals. Now, what the law, what the gospel does is it, it bridges that gap between sinful men and a holy God. 
and what the right use of the law, like we opened with tonight, would be preaching the law uh, to show people their sin and then say the only way to get from where you are as a sinner to making it to heaven one day, to being in God's favor and right with God and having a right standing with God is through the gospel. It's through the blood of Christ. It's through the sacrifice of another. The only way that a man can satisfy the righteous requirements of God is to be in Christ. There's no other way. Men try. They try and try and try. You cannot. You cannot. It has to be through faith in Jesus. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to all who believe. Romans 10.4. Christ is the end of the law. The end of it's finished. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to all who believe. We put our trust in Jesus. That's it. It's fulfilled in us. Amen. I want to read one more scripture just about the law real quickly. I'll read this. This to me really sums up because there's those that are anti-law. And though we're not under the law in our day, Christ has come, fulfilled the law. We're not under the law. There are those that are anti-law that despise it, ridicule it, tear it apart. And there is a real perversion to it. It's not biblical. We don't see that anywhere in the Bible. Paul says it's good, it's holy, it's just, it's spiritual. But it's finished, it's fulfilled. So here's what Paul says, under the Lord says through him. I'll read this from Romans 3.31. Do we then make void the law through faith? It's a, it's a question he's asking, okay? We're not under the law, but do we now make void? What does void mean here? It means useless. It means without effect. Do we now make useless the law through faith, through our faith in God? Is it useless now? He answers his own question, God forbid, yea, we establish the law. That's pretty clear to me. Are we legalists? No. Are we under the law? No. We're talking about the morals of God, the holiness of God that is taught in the law, that is now written upon the hearts and lives and minds of those that come to Christ. So I have no, it doesn't benefit me. It's not godly at all to just sit here and ridicule or mock the law or say I want nothing to do with that Old Testament stuff. I've heard people that will say that's Old Testament. That's Old Testament. And they want nothing to do with anything except the verses that they like from the Old Testament. You know, like he's my shepherd or something like that. They like that. And they pick out stuff that they like, but oh, it's nothing to do with me. They're trying to bring me under bondage. Do we then make void or useless the law through faith? God forbid we establish the law, but it's established in Christ, not by my performance of it. It's established in Christ. And if I'm in Christ, that same righteousness is fulfilled in me. And that same righteousness is still the standard that I'm to daily walk in. By the goodness of God, by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the mercy of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, by me keeping my eyes on the Lord, that's how I'm to walk. Okay, it's the same, uh, same standard that Christ has given. And so sinners who deserve hell are given instead forgiveness. This is a glorious gospel of God that Paul's talking about. We're, instead, we're given forgiveness, eternal life, 
And Paul says this is the gospel that was committed to his trust. All right. One more uh, just statement about the gospel. God's love provided what his holiness demanded. So think about it. That's the goodness of God as well. His holiness demands it, right? All through the law, it's demanded. You have to do this. But it's also the goodness of God to, he knows when he's saying that, when he's given that, that the, the one that's under it's not going to be able to keep it. Did David keep it? No, but he's a man after God's heart. He's in heaven today. God made an eternal covenant with this man, right? Did Samuel perfectly keep it? Isaiah? No, but they're in heaven today. His, his grace and his love provides what his holiness demands. So he's got to demand it so we see, so that we come under a healthy, holy fear of God, so that we come to an end of ourselves, so that we stop trying to be better. I'm never going to be better. This flesh will never be better. I need to die to myself. I'm crucified with Christ, right? And I need to come to him and lay it all before the Lord and let him impute his righteousness to me. He provides it, and he's glad to do it. He's, he's, he longs to save. He came to seek and save the lost. That's his desire. And so verse 12, if we're still in 1 Timothy chapter 1, and I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who hath enabled me for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Now, we know that God is faithful. When he comes back on a white horse at the end of the tribulation, the battle of Armageddon, he, on his, he's got on his vesture, he's got a name written faithful, the word of God and faithful and true. We, we know he's faithful, but we want to also be counted faithful by the Lord. That really is something. Uh, I think about Abraham, that the Lord said, shall I hide this thing from Abraham, which I'm about to do when he was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah for their sin? He says, for I know him, right, that he's going to keep my commandments and he's going to teach his children to follow me and walk after me. I know him. I know this man. He's going to do it. He's going to do what's right. He's going to walk after me and teach his kids too. And so that's how what Paul is saying here, Christ the Lord, uh, he has enabled me. He's counted me faithful and put me into the ministry. And so that is a blessing. Enabled actually means he put strength into me. God actually put strength in me for this ministry and for the gospel. And so Paul was not only thankful that he was saved, and you see it all through his letters, all through his epistles, how grateful he is to God. Because we'll get into some, some verses coming up. He was the chief of all sinners, he said. He, how grateful he is to just be in Christ. And then everything else after that is just lanyard, right? Everything else after that is just blessing upon blessing upon blessing. Not only am I saved and in Christ and forgiven when I should be in hell because of what I've done, but he's counted me faithful and put me into the ministry. It's almost like Paul's overwhelmed. He can hardly believe that God is this good to him, okay? He was so thankful that he was saved, but also God put strength in him for the ministry and counted him faithful. So he was a minister of the gospel. We talked about this in our first lesson. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God. That's verse 1. And so a call to the ministry is just that. It's a call from God 
to whatever ministry and service, apostle, a pastor, or a teacher, we're called. And all of us are called to uh, have a call of God, the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, to come out and be separate and, and to be reconciled or men unto God and so forth. But it is a call of God. It's not right that men would just, even within the church, just appoint of their own volition without being led by the Holy Spirit, uh, men to, or women to a position. Uh, God has to do that. God has to do that. And so he counted me faithfully, says, putting me, enabling me, and he put me into the ministry. It is a vocation. It's not a job. It's a calling. And so he counted me faithful. Let me tell you what Paul was first faithful to God. He was faithful to the Lord. He was faithful to his pure gospel of grace, which he preached. He was faithful to that gospel, not to pervert it. He fought against those who perverted it. Uh, and third of all, he, he was faithful to those that he ministered to. And I think his faithful, faithfulness had to do with his doctrine that was pure, but also his lifestyle. When he could say to people that he brought preached to that never knew the Lord, he got there, he preached the gospel, the pure gospel. He's faithful to God to go, faithful to preach his word, and then he's faithful to live it as an example before those he ministered to. In other words, he could say to them, follow me as I follow Christ. There's a lot of people that could not say that. Maybe they preach the gospel correctly, but their lifestyle is not such. And I pray that mine would be and yours would be a lifestyle that we could say to anyone around us, parents with children, could say, follow me as I follow Christ. Daddy's going to do it the right way. Mommy's going to do it the right way. And if we sin and our children see it, then we can still follow Christ and set a good example. We go and repent and we say, Daddy sinned. Mama sinned. This was wrong. Follow me as I follow Christ, even in repentance, okay, or confession or turning or crying out to God for mercy. So Paul was faithful in his witness, but he was a faithful steward of the word of God. I'll tell you what Paul was not doing. Paul was not handling the word of God deceitfully, as he said some were, or craftily, as the Judaizers or the Gnostics or any other false teacher. He did what he was supposed to do. He was humble. He was thankful. He was not arrogant. And I would look at Paul and I say, if any man in the natural sense was qualified to be a preacher in the whole planet and the history other than Jesus, I would think the Apostle Paul would be, right? A Pharisee of Pharisees, circumcised on the eighth day. And we read all about him in Galatians and Philippians in his life. We would think that man's qualified, and yet he still had to be called by God. It wasn't enough to him to be qualified in the natural sense. Nobody knew the scriptures like Paul, right? Nobody knew that like the Apostle Paul, and he tried to walk up and measure to that what he knew. He was blinded. He was in sin, but he was walking in the light that he, uh, of what he thought was right. If anybody in the natural would have been qualified, it would have been Paul, but this is not a natural calling. Nothing about our Christianity is just out of, out of natural. I always say it if, if it, if it was just natural, Paul would have been, his ministry would have been to who? Who would you think his ministry would have been to? The apostle to the Jews, right? It was just natural. That just makes sense. God saw fit to make him an apostle to the Gentiles. And take Peter, who was a fisherman, who was a Jewish man, but he was just a fisherman, not nearly the education in the Jewish laws and so forth, like Paul, and said, I'm going to make you the apostle to the Jews. It's the calling of the Lord. It's not natural 
giftings and callings. We have natural giftings and callings, and they can be used for God if they're sanctified and given unto the Lord. But there has to be a calling and empowering from the Lord. So I want to cover just a little bit more in verse uh, 13. Now he's speaking about himself. And this comes as, as we come to know the Lord and we come to see our life before Christ more clearly. Would you agree with that? When I look back at, at how I lived in LSU and how I lived in high school and the things I did and the way I thought and the selfishness and things, and I, and I see that more clearly now that I'm saved. I didn't see it at the time, right? just thought I'm a normal uh, whatever. But he says before, speaking of himself, God's so good he put me in the ministry Kind of be faithful. I was before, verse 13, a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Uh, when you follow it uh, in, the, in the Greek language, okay, when he says I, three things, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and injurious. They intensify those words by definition. A blasphemer sounds pretty bad, and it is. And then a persecutor, and injurious, and I'm going to talk about these words for just a minute. He says that of himself, this is his life B.C., and, and we, need to be, we need to be extremely humble when we're thinking about other people and I say, well, what's, you know, what's, what's wrong with so-and-so? Why can't they come on in the Lord and grow? Or what's wrong with so-and-so that they won't give their life to Christ? Um, we have to remember who and what we were before we came to know Jesus. There needs to be a humility there. We were blinded. We were in our sin. We might have been good old boys and good people in the world's eyes, and yet we're, we're hell-bound sinners without the grace of God. We needed the Lord. And so Paul's looking back, and he's saying, boy, that life I had before. And all I can say is, praise God for the power to change a life. To completely change a life. Paul, Saul of Tarsus to the Apostle Paul to the Gentiles who died for the Lord in Rome and was beheaded, right? Time of his departure was at hand. Uh, that, that transformation is like God gave that for an example. I can't say it any other way. People are saved. All of us have a testimony. But that life of 180 degree turn, so to speak, of persecuting Christians and then turn around this way and dying for Christ, you can't see a greater, it happens all the time, but this one is given to us in the Bible as a perfect scripture, I mean, it's perfect testimony of the power of the Lord to completely change a life. We don't, I preached several months ago about you must be born again, that if you're lost, you're lost, and if you're saved, you're saved. We don't ease into this thing, and over time, when did you, you get saved? I don't know. I just kind of, I don't know, just kind of always believed. No, you have to be born again. You have to be born again. There's a specific moment. There might be a lot that leads up to your salvation. A lot of things where God's opening your eyes and showing things. I'm talking about that moment where you pass from death to life. That has to be. That has to be. That moment has to be where we're passed from death to life and we're not in some limbo state in between. We are either in Christ or we're outside of Christ, okay? Paul is talking about his life. He was completely changed from the moment he met the Lord on that Damascus road. He was no longer his own. Lord, what will you have me to do? After he asked, Lord, who are you? 
and the Lord says, I'm Jesus whom you persecute. He says, Lord, what will you have me to do? That was his life. That was not his life before. It was a to totally new life. Lord, what he called him Lord, and what will you have me to do? You go on into Damascus, it will be told you what you should do. And then it was every, from then on, it was just waiting on God, going in the name of the Lord, being filled with the Spirit, uh, learning. He went and spent three and a half years in the Arabian desert with the Lord, and he was taught by the Holy Spirit to kind of catch him up with the other apostles where they were in their knowledge of the Lord. Uh, but everything from that very moment on was not the same man. If any man being blasphemed, he's a new creature. And so this is what he's talking about. That life I had before, I was a blasphemer and a persecutor of Christ and his church and injurious. A blasphemer means a railing, someone that rails. I mean, like, a, like, a, like he was seeing a picture, uh, a picture of a mob that saying things they ought not say, railing against God. That's a blasphemer. Uh, a persecutor is one, the picture is given the definition as one chasing an animal to pursue after it. I'm persecuting, I'm going after them. And that what this says in Acts chapter 8, Paul got letters. He would, his big joy in life was to get these letters to go find where the, the Christians were and to go get them. He went after them with a zeal. He went after them. It wasn't just a job, job and he clocked out at, at 5 o'clock, okay, uh, tomorrow I'll persecute some more Christians. He had this zeal, and that's what the word injurious means, despiteful. It has to do almost with his attitude and how he did it. Not only did he do something terrible in persecuting the church of Christ, he did it with a zeal. His attitude was, I'm going to get these people. It was like it was personal. It was despiteful. He despised the Christians. That's what it says injurious. And he says this of himself. I was a blasphemer. Oh, I was worse than a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I hunted them down like animals. And third, I actually enjoyed it. Like I had this zeal. I despised the church of Christ and all those that walked in that way. And this is what he's talking about. And so this is Paul's life before the Damascus Road. And I want to touch on one thing just as we close tonight. And in one sense, it doesn't matter. We'll get into it more a week, and in one, in one sense, it does. Okay, we know everybody's a sinner, right? Another, here, here's Paul, who was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was a lawyer. He had reached the top of that profession, and that profession happened to be religious, okay? He... he did what he was supposed to do, and he reached the top in that circle. Then you have people over here that this person's a harlot, this person's a drunkard, this person's a fornicator, this person's a thief. You know, people like, like Zacchaeus that robbed everybody and took, took money for himself, the woman caught in adultery. And we see here's Paul, who's didn't do any of those things. I don't think Paul was going into harlots. I don't think Paul was stealing from people. I don't believe that. He was blinded. Both are sinners, and both need salvation by faith in Jesus Christ and him alone. There's no difference in that sense. There is a difference in the sense that, saying this for Paul, that Paul thought he was serving God. 
That's all I'm saying. It does not excuse what he did. But he thought, I'm serving the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm doing what he would want me to do. I'm doing that. The harlot knows that they're not doing what God wants them to do. And then there's the blasphemers that just blaspheme and rail against God. I don't think that that the Apostle Paul, he called himself a, a blasphemer, but I don't think he blasphemed in the sense of, of just a cursing. I don't think curses came out of his mouth, that we were profanity. He, I don't think he was just, that wasn't how he was. He was blinded and he was wrong, dead wrong. It doesn't excuse anything that he did, but I do think it's worth noting that Paul, would, he would not have been irreverent he would have been angry at someone that was irreverent. Does that make sense? And yet both are lost. So there's different kinds of sinners, I guess is my point, that all need salvation. Paul needed it just like the thief needed it, and the thieves on the cross besides, beside Jesus needed it. And, but yet he, he calls himself these things, and I think he calls himself these things because he sees clearly as he goes with Christ and grows in Christ and comes closer to the Lord, he starts to see more clearly that life before I had, how bad it was, how terrible it was. This is not people accusing him of these things. This is what he says about himself. I think there's a real humility there and something to be learned from that. Not just, oh, I'm bad, I'm really bad. But to really say, see ourselves and to acknowledge it before the Lord. I've heard somebody say, you know, uh, we think we're, we're humble. We'll say something about ourselves. Oh, I'm not all I should be. But you can find out if you're really humble if somebody else says it about you, you know. Then you get defensive again. You're back against the wall. Uh, Paul really meant it, I guess is my point. And he talks about his life before. And I'll just say this. That it's the power of the Lord to change a life. Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Or can the leopard change his spots? He says, then, all, then may ye also who are accustomed to do evil do good. You're accustomed to doing evil. This was the point of that whole scripture in Jeremiah. A leopard can't change his spots. We know that, right? He says, neither can you. You're accustomed to doing evil. Your life is wicked. You're a wicked you practice wickedness. You live in wickedness. You don't know anything else. You who are accustomed to doing evil, he says, you think you can all of a sudden be good? That's his point of that scripture. What do we need? We need a, sa a savior. We need sa a savior. We need salvation that comes from Christ alone and the righteousness that comes from Christ alone. And even after we're saved, we need to walk in the Lord and stay filled with this spirit. I'm just going to close with that, Chris, if you want to come. If you're reading just during the week, we're, I feel like we're really going to get back on track with our, our First Timothy study. I, I know the Lord's going to really use it in our church and in our lives. Just take some time to read through these chapters and be, be familiar with what's going on. But the, the altars are open, and I say we just come before the Lord and thank Him tonight for His goodness, for the power to transform a life. There's not a person in here, if you're saved, even if you're just a child and you're truly born again, your life has been transformed. I'd say even for a child, you haven't had time to, to live a life, a long life of sin like Paul did. But you're a sinner nonetheless. He saved you from that life you would have lived and, and it would have been in rebellion against God. 
It might have been worse than Paul, okay? And so we need to, I just would like us to come for a few minutes, come before the Lord, just thank him and praise him for the power to transform a life that the law, the righteousness of the law is fulfilled in Christ and that same righteousness has been imputed to us by our faith in Jesus. Oh God, we love you tonight, Lord. And Father, we just want to spend a few moments before we leave tonight, God, and take the word that you have spoken tonight from your word, God, and lay hold on it and think on it and be thankful for it. Be thankful for what you've done for us, God. Lord, we praise you, Jesus, God. Help us to stay humble, Lord. We don't have any place for pride or arrogance in our lives.